Hello and welcome to another edition of the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. As always, I'm your host Eric, and I'm joined by Theo. Talk to the people, Theo. What can I say, Rizzoli? Like just living another day under lockdown life, you know? Another day. Another dollar. Yep. Exactly. Like it's good that I'm working, but you know, the stores are open, so they won't. They can't just take my money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're probably right. I'm sort of hesitant to order stuff for delivery since I'm I'm always bringing people packages myself. So. You know exactly what you do to people's packages when you, you know, <laughs> what kind of sketchy shit you're doing to people's packages before you bring it to them. Is what you're saying? For Gile. <laughs> for Gile. <laughs> Regile. <laughs> it just means throw around in Italian. Right, exactly. I thought that's what it means. Yeah, it means drop it like it's hot. Exactly. We are here to tell you a little bit more about, well, the Giants history, the history of the New York Giants. This is going to be one of our biography episodes, if you will. This time we'll be telling you about another legendary coach of the New York Giants. This time it's about Tom Coughlin. Tom Coughlin was the coach of the New York Giants for 12 seasons, guiding them to two Super Bowl trophies in the process. He started off in college and NFL teams started to take notice of Coughlin as the QB coach of Doug Flutie at Boston College in the 80s. He would get his start in the NFL as a wide receiver coach for the Packers and Eagles before eventually landing as a wide receivers coach under Bill Parcells from 1988 and 1990. He would make his way back to Boston College after winning the Super Bowl with Parcells in 1990. So yeah, we've alluded to this fact before that he's been a part of the Giants organization and was in with Parcells in 90, but he's earned his stripes in other places. But yeah, started as a coach on the offensive side of the ball. Doug Flutie, for those of you who don't know, Toronto Argonauts legend, Buffalo Bills QB of the early... It was like in 2000, right? 2000, 2001? He was Kyler Murray before Kyler Murray. 5'9 quarterback, proved people wrong. Mm -hmm. That was one of the the biggest knocks on him was his size. Do yourselves a favor and and look up some Doug Flutie highlights. Apparently he had a very legendary college career as well, even before going to CFL. Predates our existence, but nonetheless, it's definitely worth looking up. Exactly. Tom Coughlin would get his shot as a head coach in the NFL with the expansion Jacksonville Jaguars in 1995. He also had control of the majority of football operations for the Jags at the time, effectively making him a large part of the roster construction of the team. The Jags would actually make four consecutive playoff appearances and go to two AFC championship games. He was also named coach of the year in 1996 just his second year with the expansion team. Despite going 14-2 in 1999, Coughlin could never get over the hump and make it to the Super Bowl, eventually leading to his dismissal as head coach in 2002. It's weird for me to even speak about the Jags being good because they've been such a freaking dumpster fire ever since I started following the NFL, except for the one year where they were Saxonville. Basically, you know, the Jags came out of the gates like super hot and Coughlin was definitely a part of that. Yeah, and even the Saxonville year had a touch of Tom Coughlin at the front office. So well, there you we'll go. talk about that later, but it's definitely not been the greatest of organizations. As we speak, they're holding the first overall pick in the 2021 draft, which potentially could land them a franchise quarterback for years to come. Exactly. Coughlin, for his part, was reunited with the Giants after he was hired by Ernie Accorsi to replace Jim Fossil in 2004. He ultimately led a new era in how the team operated, and we've alluded again to the fact that he was known as a very strict disciplinarian, a far cry from what Fossil had been doing at the time and earning him the nickname 
Colonel Coughlin. He was also known for setting the clocks fast in the Giants facility and finding players who did not arrive early to meetings. He oversaw the Giants' transition to Eli Manning and endured his fair share of criticism in the process, as is standard with the New York media. He would also help Tiki Barber cure his fumbling issues prior to the 2005 season, meaning that he would fulfill his potential as a great all-around back for the team. He would also go through a rocky relationship with Tiki Barber, who criticized him after a playoff loss to the Panthers in 2005. Coughlin would go as far as to refuse a sideline interview with Tiki when he was a member of the media in 2008. After a tough end to the 2006 season, chants of fire Coughlin could be heard in the Giants Stadium. However, he signed a one-year extension with the team through 2007. So we've covered this mostly in other episodes as well, but he had his fair share of controversy as coach of the Giants. But again, like we mentioned before, strict disciplinarian and really put his stamp on the team in terms of changing the culture of a team that was kind of lackadaisical and kind of a no-nonsense kind of guy. What do you think about that, Theo? Yeah, I think overall, he he sort of shifted his personality slightly. I think towards the end of his time in New York, most of the players had bought into the culture. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. As you've probably heard of by now, if you've listened to any of our previous episodes, he would lead the Giants to a Super Bowl victory in 2007, cementing his legacy in New York Giants lore. After a few more up and down years, he oversaw another collapse, which came to be known... as the Miracle at the Meadowlands 2. Despite this, similarly to 2006, Coughlin signed a one-year extension to stay with the team through 2011. He would prove himself as a leader once again, leading his team to another Super Bowl victory. Both he and Bill Parcells now had two Super Bowl victories and five playoff appearances. They would also both win the Super Bowls during their fourth and eighth seasons with the team, respectively. Kind of cool. Unfortunately for Coughlin, he would never reach those heights again as a coach as the following years were marred by inconsistent play. 2013 would be his first losing season as head coach of the Giants since Eli's rookie year in 2004. Despite fielding competitive teams throughout his tenure as coach, he eventually announced his resignation in 2016 after four straight seasons without a playoff appearance. He was inducted into the New York Giants' Ring of Honor in 2016. Coughlin would transition into a front office role with the Jacksonville Jaguars, becoming executive vice president of football operations with them after his resignation. The Jags would make it to the AFC Championship in one of his seasons with a solid defense, but they were not able to make it to the Super Bowl. Ultimately, Coughlin was fired from the Jags in December 2019 after a grievance was filed by Dante Fowler, currently a member of the Atlanta Falcons. I don't know if he's actually still in the Falcons, but... As of the writing of the script, he was on the Falcons. The grievance alleges that the Jaguars improperly fined Fowler $700,000 for not attending rehab and medical appointments in Jacksonville during the 2018 offseason. The rehab and appointments should have been optional under the collective bargaining agreement. There was much controversy at that time, which led to his dismissal. We actually have a few quotes, and this was an excerpt taken from an article written by John Reed of the Mm -hmm. Florida Times Union. He writes... There's an apparent disconnect between the players in the front office, more specifically between players and Coughlin. On Monday, the NFL Players Association sent a letter to the league's players that revealed over 25% of the grievances filed by players 
have been against the Jaguars, and you as players may want to consider this when you have a chance to select your next club. So basically, it was just a just an open notice to all the players to be hesitant to sign with them once free agency hit. The disconnect issue was first brought forth this season by then disgruntled former cornerback Jalen Ramsey when he said the front office portrayed him as a bum because he missed voluntary workouts during the team's offseason program. In April, Coughlin took a verbal shot at Ramsey and former linebacker Talvin Smith for being the only two players to skip voluntary workouts when he said that championship teams are dominated by selfless individuals who recognize that the welfare of the team must always be paramount to any other organization. In contrast to all this negativity, former Jaguar and NFL veteran Calais Campbell, Mm -hmm. he provided this silver lining during those events. He said that most of these issues are probably trying to create a winning culture through methods of holding people accountable. And he goes on to say, I liked him a lot and as a person. The way his methods are, everybody has different opinions on. But for myself, I understood them. So, Zoli, Mm -hmm. would you say that Coughlin's tactics were justified, seeing as how he had already established winning cultures in New York, and seeing as how Jacksonville was far away from winning as possible compared to any other team in the league? Or was it simply just like poor mismanagement on his part and just bad read of the culture? I feel like he might have taken it a little bit too far, fining players for not attending rehab or voluntary workouts. It's not really voluntary if you're losing money and if you're going to be shamed basically for not attending. But I can see like the intention was there to kind of build that same culture. However, Hmm. I think it just went a little bit too far in trying to do that. And I think that also winning heals all wounds. So if they had actually won the Super Bowl, then you could say, well, oh, he was justified in what he did. But because Jacksonville turned out to be such a dumpster fire, then obviously it looks bad. Yeah, and I think the way they publicly call out their superstars without a leg to stand on, like they don't have a storied franchise. They don't have the records on the wall that would be able to dictate what their superstars should do. Mm -hmm. You know, like they don't have that history that helps guide their current players. And I think, you know, Coughlin does understand it, but that's all left in New York. Calais Campbell sort of provides that insight because Calais Campbell to this day is still one of the most effective defensive linemen in the league. Mm -hmm. And even though he hasn't had much playoff success being on Arizona and stuff prior to being in Jacksonville, he understands what it takes to consistently make the Pro Bowl and such. Yeah, exactly. I think him being on the, I think he's on the Ravens now. So yeah, he's on the Ravens. Now. Yeah, I mean, hopefully for him it, it works out well. But you can see kind of both angles of it. And Jalen Ramsey is portrayed as somebody who's not exactly the easiest person to get along with. You know, he's portrayed as a bit of a diva. So I guess you could go from there. But then also like to get it to the point where the NFLPA is, you know, warning free agents not to sign there. I think that's mm-hmm. a sign of maybe you taken things a little bit too far and then there was like a constant spat with the owner's son shad khan's son with players over social media it's just a bad culture move at that point yeah you don't publicly get into a spat on social media you it's much more professional to keep things behind closed doors and here's the thing let's say tom coughlin had the same methods or did the same methods except instead of doing it in the 2010s he did it in the 80s i feel like there would be no problems with that and no controversy whatsoever and the nflpa wouldn't say anything about it you know (laughs) 
just because obviously culturally you were able to treat your players more like a drill sergeant and yeah especially now with the times we're in with social media the modern athlete where everyone has their own professional brand and such right you know Jalen Ramsey showing up to off-season workouts in a Brinks truck because he's getting paid by the LA Rams those sort of stunts don't really jive well with a freaking drill sergeant coach no Definitely not. So it's maybe a clash of personalities, but I also feel like the methods were just not appropriate for the times that we're living in. Moving on to the end of his tenure in New York, as we had mentioned, following a second Super Bowl, Coughlin would never reach those heights again as a coach. And the ensuing years in New York would be marred by inconsistent play. So in 2012, the Giants would fail to make the playoffs with a 9-7 and record. The following three years would be a low point for Coughlin's tenure, failing to produce a winning season or playoff qualification. 2013 would see them go 7-9, and with 2014 and 15 finishing with a 6-10 and record. Despite all of these issues, Coughlin goes down as one of the greatest coaches in NFL history. His part in the Giants' victories will never be forgotten. Arguably, the highlight of those three years was the drafting of wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. in 2014. Despite battling an injury early on, Beckham would go on to win the Offensive Rookie of the Year award. His final stat line that season actually read 91 catches for 1,300 yards and 12 touchdowns. All great numbers, especially when considering that he missed the first four games that year. So he only played 12 games in the regular season. And that season... His fame rose to national prominence, due in large part to his performance in one particular game. On November 14th of that year, the Giants hosted the Cowboys for Sunday Night Football. And in front of a national audience, Odell would make an unforgettable catch for a touchdown that would leave most viewers speechless. So in acrobatic fashion, he reaches above and beyond his body and secures the ball in one hand. Commentator and former Bengals wide receiver Chris Collinsworth, who was at the game, Mm -hmm. would proclaim it as the best catch he had ever seen. That moment, known by many in modern media, would be dubbed as the catch. The catch. And Odell would instantly become a superstar. It led to text conversations with Michael Jordan, and he also developed a friendship with LeBron James. Comparisons were also being drawn between him and Jerry Rice. You know how, especially the news, like when they talk about the NFL, it's always a what have you done for me lately type of industry. Mm -hmm. Because he was such a hot performer, they were already drawing parallels between him and the greatest wide receiver of all time. Yeah. Some people in the league were not too fond of that. Cornerback Stephon Gilmore would say his world is based on hype and that one catch. Everybody sees that. Everybody knows him for that. And people don't really look at the film and watch him and really don't know what type of player he is. So that's a fair point. That's a fair point. There was some clapback, most definitely, especially since he's like on top of the world, you know, New York Giants, you know, he's a good looking guy, very marketable personality. Beckham himself has actually reflected on that moment. He's quoted as saying, it's bittersweet because I think my career is much more than one catch, but was a very iconic moment and just a prolific moment in my career. I don't mind getting tagged on Instagram and seeing a bunch of nice catches. It gives me motivation to do something crazier. To be fair, if you had followed Beckham's career in college, him and his teammate Jarvis Landry, who's also a pretty top-end NFL wide receiver, they've always been known for trying to go above and beyond performance-wise with their catches. Mm -hmm. The one-handed catches are, are their specialty, right? They would do a documentary on their training routines like while they were in uh, LSU. 
And they would just late at night sneak into the facility and just work on these weird catches, try to put their bodies in these awkward positions to make the completion. You know, this eventually paid off. And in 2018, as a cornerstone member of the Giants franchise, Odell would sign a lucrative five-year $95 million deal with $41 million guaranteed. We'll talk more about Odell in ensuing podcasts, but suffice it to say that his career with the Giants didn't go as planned. But this definitely overshadowed most of Coughlin's career towards the end. We don't talk about Coughlin as much because the concentration is focused on Odell, you know, and getting him the ball as much as possible. Yeah. And I think with the benefit of hindsight, looking back on this moment of of being an iconic moment, let's say in Giants history, you could safely say that this catch kind of broke the internet when it first came out. Like everybody was talking about it. You didn't even have to be a football fan and you probably would have seen the catch happening. This is the start of rapid use of social media for those types of things, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Social media was used, obviously, throughout the aughts and into the early 2010s. But this is like where it's reaching a peak in terms of sharing things and trends, you know, and trends, you know, like now we have the TikTok generation, but like this was the start of that, you know, a lot of people were imitating it. They were trying to do weird things on Instagram just because of Odell Beckham Jr., There are like ads where a bride is throwing a bouquet behind her and then one of the bridesmaids goes and makes a catch that's very similar to Odell Beckham, like the one-handed kind of reaching over your head catch falling down, you know, like it became a meme in itself. You know, obviously we'll speak more about Odell in ensuing podcasts, but I also think that it took away from Coughlin at the end of his career. Now, obviously, there were bigger issues and Beckham could be seen as kind of the lone bright spot during those years. That's why it sort of overshadowed Coughlin because people were down on the Giants, but from their perspective, at least we have this like cornerstone franchise type player. Mm-hmm. haven't seen the likes of since Jerry Rice, let's say, that yeah. we could build our team around. He's like the ultimate weapon. Mm-hmm. But we soon learn that you can't just build your team around the wide receiver. Exactly. But there has to be other components to it. Yeah, definitely. In terms of Tom Coughlin's place in Giants history, just to comment briefly on that, I feel as though you look at the stats and realize that he's got the same number of victories and Super Bowl victories as Parcells and you draw the parallels there of them both doing it in their fourth and eighth seasons. It seemed a little weird for me when I was researching it to put Coughlin and Parcells on the same level but I think when you look back on it I feel like you could definitely make the argument that they deserve to be beside one another in terms of the ranking of Giants coaches all time. Most definitely. The only thing is, if I were to compare the two, I would say that Parcells would still be considered as a better coach, despite the fact that they have the same Super Bowl victories, Mm -hmm. just because he never necessarily reached very low lows later on in his Giants career. Yeah. Seasons started at the beginning of his career, and then he just never dipped that low afterwards. Whereas Tom Coughlin, he had to, you know, work for his contracts year by year because sometimes the Giants were just inconsistent. That's true. Yeah, I agree. In terms of the Giants, I feel like Coughlin and his teams, by extension, thrived more under pressure. And that's like when their backs were up against the wall was when you would see them perform at their best. Whereas the 1986 team, the 1990 teams were seen as more dominant throughout the regular seasons and showed that dominance to the very end. You look at just the straight up numbers, you can make the comparisons. And I think those comparisons will be made for years to come. But you're right. There's a little bit more inconsistency in the play 
of the Giants of Tom Coughlin era versus you know, the giants of the Parcells era. But again, it was important for us to share Coughlin's time with the giants and important for us to highlight him as one of the great coaches in giants history, because obviously, you know, he was able to lead the giants to the promised land twice. Most definitely. Thanks again for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll be moving on to more recent times in giants history uh, in the coming episodes. But thanks again for listening to check down Charlie's as always check us out on Twitter and Instagram and uh, let us know if you have any feedback on the episodes. So until next time, thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to the check down Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlie's on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlie's on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.